0: Hello, I'm Joe Glenton and welcome to Warrior Nation, the only podcast in the UK offering a critical lens on the British military and its relationship with civil society. In this, our fourth series, we'll be speaking with journalists, scholars, activists and campaigners to uncover the tensions between the military and political institutions. If you enjoy what we produce and would like to help us make more of it, you can now support us through Patreon. The first 10 subscribers to our highest tier get a free copy of my latest book, Veteranhood. We've also teamed up with Houseman's, our favourite radical bookshop, to offer second-tier patrons discounts on their amazing selection of books. See the show notes for more details. Nick Buxton is a communication specialist with 20 years' experience in the international development and climate sustainability fields. He currently works for the Transnational Institute, and he has written extensively on the intersection of climate change, security and the military. Well, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to see you. I've, I've been had you in my mind as, uh, as a guest for a long time, and it's great to, to, finally, to finally see you. Well, thanks for the invitation. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I wonder if we could just start by expanding on your bio a little bit. How is it that you first became interested in climate issues, and particularly, because it's a matter of great interest to me too, particularly the, ra- the relationship between climate change and, I suppose, orthodox ideas about security and alternative ideas about security and, and the military.
1: Well, I guess, I guess I kind of particularly got. I, I was aware of climate issues for a while, but um... It kind of came home to me when I, I lived in Bolivia from 2004 to 2008, and I was living in La Paz, which is an amazing city right up in the Altiplano, up in the Andes, uh, and it's surrounded by mountains and glaciers. And one of them, it has actually the fame of being having the highest ski slope in the world at the time, um, and they were predicting that that ski sl- that the snow would disappear by 2020, and it disappeared in 2006 while I was there. Um, so you've now got this barren ski slope at 5,000 metres. So we're talking r- really serious altitude. Uh, and and the city was working out how it's going to deal with the fact that it's going to lose 20% of its water supplies um, because of climate change. And it was happening right in front of my eyes in a way that I guess you were a bit more cushioned to it when I live in, in Britain or somewhere like London. So so that kind of woke me up to it. And um, and so I was kind of became more involved in climate um activism at the time, especially when I got back and uh, at the, around about that time, and I went to Copenhagen in 2009, which was a big UN climate talks, So there's a lot of hope there uh, that something would be done and nothing happened. Um, and I was actually doing a media work for the Bolivian government. So I could see that really there was a lot of talk, but no action. So I was just, it just got me asking the question. There's, it was quite clear that there wasn't climate denialism from the likes of cl- the UK government, whether Conservative or Labour, they've generally said climate issue climate exists, uh, change is happening, unlike some parts of the US. But they weren't, uh, they were clearly not prepared to take the action. So I was like, well, what are they going to do with the consequences? And that's when I started to talk to friends who much more in the world of security uh, research and have looked much, uh, I didn't come at this Known much about kind of military planning at all or security strategies and they say well they've been talking about this since the early 2000s so there are military plans Um, and so I just wanted to look at what those plans were and what how were they going to deal with the climate crisis because if we're not stopping it worsening then we're going to be dealing with the consequences and it was quite obvious that uh, the military would be a, a key actor in the future, and we needed to be have a better understanding of what their thinking and planning was.
0: Exactly that, and I wanted to just—I um, uh, think there's a, there's a quote from you. I think it's your pin tweet I picked up on the other day, and I think it really captures the essence of what we're discussing. And the quote—it's from 2022. The quote is: "For almost 20 years, the world's most powerful militaries, also some of the biggest carbon polluters, have been pushing a narrative that climate change will need a security response. Today's IPCC report shows that the opposite." Is needed. Can you just, as a, as a, as I say, as a kind of framing uh, mechanism, just unpack that a little bit for us and tell us, tell us in more detail what you, what you mean by that?
1: Like I was saying, in the military, once I started to dig in, you can see that the military has been talking about uh, climate change um, as a security issue um, since the early two thousands. Um, they're not climate deniers. And that's because the job of the military, of course, is to is both to uh, be ready to fight, but also to kind of anticipate the scenarios and situations they're going to face. The security of a nation uh, in the in the coming years. So they differ in that sense to politicians. They work on a longer time frame. Uh, they're looking much more at plans for up to you know 20, 10, 20, even thirty, even in the US's case, right up to the end of the century. And they started to develop strategies which very much focused on climate change through a lens of how is this going to affect our national security? Um, and the Pentagon very much led on this. But then uh, the EU kind of followed up in, in the mid-2000s and 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, the UK very much included it in their national defence Security strategy in 2015, um, and and what you see is that they they're looking at what this crisis means for military operations. Um, so we talk about what are the both how it will affect them directly. So for example, if you're fighting uh, in situations of extreme heat, you know how do you how do you deal with that? If you're dealing with de- situations of drought, you know how do you deal with that? How do we deal with the kind of fuel issues that many troops face. In Iraq, for example, there was some of the militias who were fighting against the US and UK and other forces realized that if you kind of cut off fuel, uh, then you would also affect the kind of operational ability of the military to fight so they're looking at all those kind of issues but then they're looking at the longer term issues and they're thinking well how will it change the world where, in which we're operating and that's where very much you get this idea that it's going to cause more conflict we're going to have more fighting there's going to be more instability and and a term emerged which was called threat multiplier um, or the UK calls it drivers of instability. So they they imagine that every kind of threat that we do have, you will worsen. So if you've got terrorism, then it will worsen with climate change because it will create more potential for recruitment of terrorists. If you're going to have um, displacement, you're going to have more displacement and so on. So that's very much part of their, their planning. Um Now, the problem for me is that if everything is a security threat, then what you're saying is the military must be the solution to those security threats. And that's very much the framing of many of the documents. You know, if everything, if you're a hammer, then everything, as the famous saying, everything starts to look like a nail, which needs to be bashed with a hammer. And the argument in a lot of the strategies is that because of this more unstable world we're going to move into, uh, we need the military more than ever. Therefore, we need more funding and we need to be spending more time on kind of military responses uh, to issues that often don't have security answers. And this is why I was saying in that tweet you quoted that the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the big uh, body of scientists that um, periodically produce scary reports about the world we're heading towards, uh, were saying that actually the Evidence was that climate change doesn't necessarily need more conflict. Uh, So some of the diagnosis of the military planners is wrong. Um, But secondly, that the best ways to resolve conflict are not to send in troops and the military, but to invest in inclusive governance. You know, if you've got better politics. Uh, then you will have ways of resolving conflict, Uh, longer term planning. So we're not just responding to crises, but we're actually looking at how we prepare states and support states uh, dealing with the impacts of climate change, support for displaced peoples, looking at setting up mechanisms for people to resolve conflicts in other ways. And so it's it's a very different approach um, and it largely does not involve uh, the military. So what I'm seeing, what I guess I'm seeing in this the big picture is that as we're dealing with the growing impact of climate change, uh, we're seeing an increasing call for military responses uh, to deal with the fact that we failed to tackle its underlying causes. Uh, so we're kind of dealing with what I would call a kind of politics of consequences, where we're just dealing with the consequences of climate change. And often we end up, if we use just military means, we will actually worsen the situation, we'll create more, more instability, uh, when actually we need a very different approach, uh, one which very much looks at kind of long-term investment, which I can kind of share about later. But um, So that was really what the tweet was capturing, this, this moment where we're starting to militarize a crisis that really doesn't have military solutions. 100%.
0: I think that's a bit of a theme. It's a theme with, in many areas of life that the, the military is framed as a kind of cure all, and it comes up in our own conversations at Forces Watch. Um, you are the proud author. You should be the pr- you know proud of of, a, of an excellent primer on climate security, which which we drew on for our for our questions here, and we will link that in the show notes. And uh, we urge all our listeners um, to go and check it out. Um, and a question we've landed on. Many times is, is one of how the military. It's kind of you kind of touched on it there. Uh, how the military sees climate change, and it, it's clear to us that their their main concern isn't necessarily, or in the way we would might want it to be, the impending doom, of the planet, but rather as you've mentioned, um, the kind of crises and threats um, that ride with it. And you've really developed, spent a lot of time developing a kind of definition, I guess, of of what you mean and what they mean by climate security. And I wonder if we could. Um, I think it really captures the problem of these orthodox security approaches. I wonder if we could just spend some time talking about your definition of what climate security is as per the um, the primer that you've written for the Transnational Institute.
1: Yeah, I just before, before coming on this call, I just thought I'd just look again at um, how the UK defined it because um, I imagine a lot of your audience is in the UK. Um, and so in 2015, they talk about climate change as a, a driver of instability. Uh, that's the term they used. Uh, and they say it's likely to disrupt populations, agriculture and supply chains, making political instability, conflict and migration more likely. Um, this is part of their kind of what they call horizon. I think it's horizon planning. And you'll see if, what's interesting is there's a few things that kind of stand out from that. One is this um, they talk about agriculture and supply chains uh, so it's seen through lens of the bigger, um, particularly the kind of bigger global economy. And that, of course, is largely run by and benefiting the largest corporations. So we're talking mainly about what's the impacts on transnational capital. So that's that's a that's a concern uh, that's coming through. They're not talking about food insecurity in the Sahel in that, really, they're talking about the kind of bigger...
0: No. We talk, what we're talking about here, sh- shell oil, Shell Oil and big firms yes, like that.
1: Big, is that what they mean? And Syngenta and all the big food firms and seed firms and so on. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's it's there is a even hidden in the language a little bit is kind of their priorities, and then political instability and conflict, which I, I've kind of touched on, which is really this idea that this will uh, make a, a, a world more in, unstable and therefore, and that some of those conflicts will spill over into areas that affects UK's strategic interests. So that could be in kind of close to those supply chains that they're concerned about, or it could be conflict that then ends up on, on the shores of Britain, or in areas where UK have kind of um, key economic or political interests. And then the other issue that you'll see keep coming up is migration uh, and this mm-hmm. this is why it becomes a bit wider than a military thing, because I think this ties into this, there is this big, you'll see this in all the military strategies, this concern that there will it will drive more migration. And, and that very much fits into a kind of bigger narrative we have right now, which is the kind of threat that UK has faced, even when it's and by small boats coming across the channel. It's, it's painted as a kind of security mm-hmm. threat When even when you're talking about really tiny numbers. UK gets way less migrants than many others. And most of the evidence shows that most migrants move within countries and, and don't cross borders. But it's, it's painted in a very kind of uh, security uh, framing. And, and that fits a kind of bigger culture where we're having now a lot of money going into militarizing borders and making it more and more dangerous and more and more deadly for migrants to even seek uh, safe ways of finding security. But it becomes very much a kind of a narrative of, of threat that very much drives a kind of a racist, much more racist approach towards mm-hmm. migrants. And, and you'll see that in all of these. So so what, what you see there is that those who are the most vulnerable to climate change uh, those who are most impacted uh, whether it's people um, suffering conflict or drought or or being forced to displace suddenly become the vic- become the threats so these are the victims of climate change they had nothing to do with causing climate change um, and yet they're now a bit deemed as the kind of main security threats uh, to the nation whereas those who actually are causing climate change in this case we can say that the oil companies Uh, at this point, making the biggest profits they've ever made, and who have known for decades that they were causing climate change, are not seen as security threats. Uh, The Mm -hmm. corporations uh, that um, have kind of concentrated power and uh, have caused a lot of the high carbon emissions uh, are not seen as threats. Uh, The military itself, which is one of the largest carbon polluters, uh, is not they're not describing themselves as part of the problem and they're certainly not describing themselves as threats. Um, But if we actually look at what's causing climate change, uh, they're all some of the biggest actors. So a real security approach would say, actually, the thing that's causing us most of our security issues right now are the biggest causes of climate change, one of them being the military. Uh, So it would command a very different approach but like I said, the security approach just assumes that the, the threats are out there, um, and they're often coming from those actually who are the victims of climate change. So, so that, that's that's really what we're looking at in this and in, in that primer was like who, the question we keep, need to keep coming back to, and I'm sure it comes up a lot in your podcast. Is when we hear the word security, whose security are we talking about, and whose security yeah. has been? Are we kind of Um, undermining in in taking a security approach and if we really were to be secure what would be the cause what would actually bring about real security Uh, because it's one of those terms that can kind of mean something to everyone but I think most people when they think about security are thinking about having a job having um, a house and a militarized version of security can actually work completely against those things. At various points, so so we need to always ask ourselves the question: Whose security are we talking about uh, when we hear this word "security"? And that's particularly the case when when we're talking about climate change, which will cause instability and will cause uh, will need a response, needs a very clear societal response. Um, but if we leave that just in the hands of the military, then we're going to have a very closed and narrow and potentially more dangerous way of dealing with it than if we actually tackle it in different ways. Um, And I guess it's encapsulated right now for me in the way that the UK has is looking, I don't know if it's still continuing, but Trust at least committed to doubling um, military spending almost by 2030, so to kind of close to 100 uh, billion pounds. And yet we're cutting aid at the same time. And if we actually wanted to kind of reduce insecurity around the world, uh, the last thing you'd be doing right now is cutting the aid that would actually support um, support people to kind of deal with the consequences of climate change, uh, to build up the resilience. Instead, we're very much investing in this kind of response of how do we deal with the consequences rather than how do we stop it worsening.
0: It's interesting. I read your, I read your primer a couple of weeks ago to prepare the questions. And then last week in my other guise, I'm a journalist, and uh, Shell appeared. Um, with I, th- I think their thirty-two billion profit and, and resistance in uh, in the current government to any kind of windfall tax. Um, but uh, it was interesting to me because uh, there's a section in your in your primer which talks about how climate security entered the policy arena um, in effect. And it was very interesting to me that one of the the key documents uh, was co-authored by a. a a former Shell oil planner or strategist of some description. It'd be interesting just to talk about the history of that process of, the, of climate change appearing as a policy issue, and particularly a security policy issue. Because it's very interesting to me. You would imagine that a Shell oil planner would not, would. It's just interesting that that someone was involved in the process of climate change really arriving as a as a matter for policy um so it'd be interesting if you could just talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i it, it is interesting and 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 i think there's kind of a quite a few threads you could pull on there but um uh, one of one of the interesting things i said is uh the military plans long term there's not many institutions in society that look especially in the political world that kind of look beyond the next election cycle but even businesses tend to only work in fairly short term Short-term views, uh, but one of the exceptions is Shell. Uh, they've had this uh, planning scenarios team that has been planning, doing long-term planning uh, for for many years, and and then the military are the others who kind of do this kind of long-term horizon planning. Uh, so it's it's interesting. Both kind of look long-term, uh, and and then there's there's quite a lot of. Dovetailing of how the two work together, because if we think the military and the oil industry are very have got a long history together right from the beginnings of the oil era and the military has very much been uh, deployed to protect it to go alongside it um uh, to benefit from it and and also to fight over it you know oil watch did a study that showed like a quarter of all wars have come out over oil. Uh, And then if you think about where the U.S. has all its military bases, they're nearly always in oil strategic zones. Uh, The ones that the U.K., France, all of the NATO allies, wherever they have kind of presences, are largely in oil-rich regions. And it goes even deeper than that. When we looked at um, uh, security firms Uh, recently, we did this report looking at the impact of military on kind of climate change right now. And we saw that actually some of the biggest firms that are winning contracts um, militarily, the kind of biggest arms industries are also deployed as security firms to defend defend oil assets in places like Nigeria, Uh, right through from the security firms such as like G4S uh, to some of the kind of bigger military players. So it kind of penetrates right down this kind of world of security and energy have been very much um, tied tied at every level, so it's not a really a surprise, really, that you get this the two even sharing staff to make decisions and planning around how climate change might affect us, and then very much coming together on on a, on a view that we will need security solutions to deal with the consequences, because that's they're very much two two entities that have very much existed. Uh, together and correlated together and of course that became very much part of our public consciousness most obviously in the Iraq war where it became quite clear that this was a war that was not about uh, the threat of Saddam Hussein to us but about uh, it, the, you know the strategic importance of that region and the strategic importance of oil for um, for western economies so it became part of our consciousness very much in the British public at that time, um, but it's got a long, a long history and it continues to be very, very much uh, tied together.
0: 100%. Um, I wanted to spend a little bit of time, I suppose, when we talk about climate change and policy, my understanding from your, from your primary is that there were two key responses by particularly Western state security bodies, the military, etc., um, and they are firstly to research and predict outcomes, which is kind of, we talked about that a little bit, but also to prepare militaries for what you term climate adaption. Can we just talk about what, particularly the latter, what does that look like, climate adaption? What are we talking about practically um, when, when we say the militaries will be adapt, climate adapted or ha- however you want to frame it?
1: Yeah. Climate ready defence, I think is what the UK calls it. Yeah. Um, it's um I I mean one of the things is it's looking at, at it's but looking at um fightability, kind of the ability to fight, and also looking at military assets. There's something like half. I I think I s if I remember the statistic right, US military assets, about half of them face quite severe threats from extreme weather. Um they have something like one thousand seven hundred naval assets, which are at the risk of sea sea, um, rise. And even, I think, one of the biggest um, operational hubs in the US, near Virginia, uh, it basically gets flooded each year. So they're dealing with these uh, consequences already. So one is it about making sure that those assets are um, kind of protected and can can continue to operate. Um, The other one is this issue of fuel. And that's where that's where there is a kind of an interest in finding alternatives to oil and fuel. I mentioned that briefly with Iraq and Afghanistan where Mattis, the general talked about as a tether of fuel that was kind of making it vulnerable, but it also, it also plays out in areas like having energy supplies when uh, troops are out on, uh, on a combat mission. And so they're looking at things like solar and um, kind of different ways of kind of powering, a particular mission especially now that they depend a lot more on kind of technological and electric uh, electronic technology there needs to be power sources. Uh, so so those those are the kind of things that are looking in terms of kind of operational ability and and that's also has a flip side that the the defense industry is quite happy to use which is they say that they're going green. And that's good for reputation. So, particularly before the COP, you know, the you, the Department of Defense was putting out all these things to show how how green it was and how it was also committed to net zero, and because it's important for the military to have a, a good reputation. They don't want to be kind of behind on that. So, that's not really the key driver. I would say the key driver is how do we fight better um, and so if renewable technologies will work. Uh, they're quite happy to use it, um, but then of course it has that benefit that they can kind of promote it as as showing that the the military is going green. And I think that sometimes misled people a bit who climate activists who see well at least the military are taking it seriously, but without thinking about the consequences of saying uh, of giving more power and funding to the military in a more climate and secure world. So those are the kind of key actions that uh, the military are taking. I think where where it comes up against a hard block is really uh, it's proved it's quite easy to put a solar panel on a base it's much harder to to have a fighter jet say the F35 which uses about 5600 liters an hour to fly to to find alternatives to oil and, and that's that's the big problem they have is that about 75% of the emissions that the military emit come from operations, uh, and they're all intensely oil-guzzling, whether it's a tank or whether it's a, it's a jet. They use up vast amounts of fuels. And there just isn't the alternatives in terms of alternative fuels, um, whether it's synthetic or hydrogen. They don't exist at the scale we need, or they would require such a huge amount of land use uh, that it would have other consequences in terms of food security and so on and that's why it's we need to kind of take this idea that the military can become green with a with a more than a pinch of salt because so far there is no evidence that they can do it so I think we'll start to see the same things that we see from from Shell and other firms where they where they will make a big thing of a of a few small actions, but hide the bigger picture, or they'll talk about offsets, but they won't actually reduce their emissions to the scale they need. The, the report came out just before the last UN climate talks, which showed that the global military count for about 5.5% of total emissions in the world. So it's that's double civil aviation, for example. So it's pretty, it's, it's very significant. And what's also significant is that military spending is massively increasing right now. Yes, um, on the back of Ukraine, of course, it's become it's become a huge driver of military spend. So the UK, you know, made big commitments to expand its um, military spend. In Germany, of course, most famously, has almost doubled its commitment. And a lot of that goes on equipment, and a lot of that equipment is very, very carbon intensive. Uh, so we're actually going in the and, and we've also just got this short window um people say that really emissions need to come down before 2030 so right at this point we're actually starting to invest in some of the most carbon intensive industry of the wo- in the world right now which is the military um so there's there's going to be a huge mismatch between some of the rhetoric and what actually is uh, will be the reality and you know the F35 which i just mentioned now uses about 40% more fuel than its predecessor. So, you know, again, again that's obviously going the wrong direction. Going the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> rather than the right direction.
0: If you're enjoying this conversation, you can help us platform more critical voices on militarism by subscribing to our Patreon. And for a limited period, we've teamed up with Houseman's Bookshop to offer patrons a discount on Radical Reads. Click the link in the show notes to find out more. You make a very important point in your primer, and I know having been in and around the military for many years, um, that patriarchy is a dominant force in the way militaries and security organisations think. Um, And that will, as you argue, and I agree, inevitably shape the the response, the military response to climate change. Can we just talk a little bit about how you see, how how you imagine that will be expressed, how patriarchy will be expressed and perhaps even hardened in the military approaches to um, to climate change, I,
1: I guess I see that coming through in terms of a, a top down approach uh, to to dealing with with crises. It's one that prioritizes hard security approaches, and it doesn't look at the kind of wider issue of who's most impacted. And one of the things about um, that kind of various. Um, women's organisations have always pointed out is that of course we know that conflict most impacts on on women um, and so, so these things will all kind of dove, dovetail together I think and it, I think it's really important to kind of learn from more kind of integral approaches to security uh, which look not just at conflict on the surface but what's kind of the underlying drivers of those conflicts uh, that relate issues of fighting to both the environment, to society as a whole. Um, and we just need a kind of a real different approach of thinking with the crisis. So just to give an example, in right now there is um, there is growing conflict in, in the regions of Mali and Sahel, and it's been called a kind of a climate security issue. Um, but one of the main responses has been to send in uh, military forces led by often by the French, um, and it's not resolving the conflict. The conflict is getting worse in that region. It gets very little coverage in the news. And it's it's very much kind of top-down approach from from Europe. It's not a proper understanding of society and culture in which they're operating. It often ends up reinforcing uh, some of the most abusive and corrupt um, power systems in, in some of those countries. And it's not dealing with the underlying kind of environmental issues that are that are causing uh, the instability. So that's why I think we need a, a an entirely new, an entire. It's not new, but we need an entirely different approach to some of these security issues. Um, it means rather than just defaulting to thinking we've got a conflict, we therefore need to deploy forces. We need to really understand what is driving this conflict uh, and what the best ways of resolving it are. Um, and that 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 just demands a much more integrated approach and it's about long-term planning and it's about investing in, in the right areas and it's just not the approach that is being uh, currently taken there's a whole movement of um people committed to kind of what's called environmental peace building which take a which has got some support at un level but which it takes a would take a very different approach uh, to situations such as we're facing in mali and would put issues of women who often often can be both play a huge role in peace building and often have been at the forefront of peace movements i can think of an example in sudan for example where where really some some Major peace efforts only came about because of the leadership of women's organisations, and because they're most impacted, you know, can break out of that kind of conflict and, and lead to very very different outcomes, and those are the kind of solutions we need to be looking towards.
0: Hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, yeah, another very interesting point um, that you you made in the in the primer is that is there's a question about how sometimes on some occasions I don't think it's generally the case, but there are, there are occasions which you, you give examples of where national security approaches, and you kind of spoke about it in, in, a, in, in a previous answer about some people kind of think, oh, the military can be green. Uh, and there's a question about where the national security approaches, they sometimes merge or blur with more activist bottom-up approaches. And you're, uh, given the power imbalance there, it usually ends up reinforcing the top-down narrative. And you give a really interesting example of a former, I believe he was Dutch, general writing a section for an activist book on climate change. And I suppose, because the green movement is very diverse, isn't it? It comes in all kinds of forms uh, and all kinds of people are talking about the climate as, as you've, as you've mentioned. And I suppose there's a question there, how do uh, laymen uh, or people new to the environmental movement, how do you navigate and separate these kind of competing visions um, which can sometimes blur as you've mentioned?
1: Yeah, I was listening to one of your your very first podcasts, I think, which was talking about how militarism kind of gets embedded into society, and uh, which was which was very interesting. And and of course the kind of soft power of the military, but also how how it um gets reinforced in many ways, whether it's kind of connections with schools, um, but it's also connections with environmental groups. And I think at a time when many climate activists were just Desperate for action, they were looking for any signs of hope, and there was one. As I said, the military has not been a, a place of climate denialism, at least not in not in its hierarchy and in its official statements. Uh, so there was a real sense that um, here was an ally, and not just an ally, but a powerful ally. You know, if the military is on our side, then how can we not win? Uh, and I think that's led just led some environmental groups very much embracing the military as an ally and. The example you mentioned was a Dutch general wrote wrote actually a chapter in the Extinction Rebellion handbook. So it was a very unusual pairing. Um, and so there have been a lot of people who've been welcoming and therefore they welcome the military thing, but they also welcome the, the framing of climate security because on, on one level, climate change is going to lead to insecurity. So the military making this a priority national security strategies saying that climate change is a security issue um, has been very much welcomed, especially in the US. I've lived in the US for a long time. And and there, you know, it was like seen as one way of getting the Republicans on board was if the military spoke out about it. It hasn't been successful in that regard, but that was at least the the thinking. Um, And there's been a real push, particularly from the Democrats to really prioritize climate security in in all the kind of defense thinking. And I think it's I think it's understandable. It's like if we integrate it into the thinking, then that will kind of play out in all the other areas um, as well. And it will start to give this a, a higher focus and a higher priority. Um, but you're right in, in the critique that we kind of draw out is that then that it it gets it it both gets reinforced but it also blurs with other people's visions of climate security. Uh, and other people, what they mean by climate security is that just that we need to be aware of who's, who's impacted, that this will affect people's security, that we need to be studying that, we need to have better, greater attention to that, we need to prioritise that. But they don't really mean that the solution is necessarily a military one, um, or that we will need a particularly militarised approach towards it. But when you've got a very powerful institution which is getting all the funding, uh, which is which is being resourced and you have another approach which is really under-resourced like the environmental peace building that i referred to in the last uh, approach in places like mali then what can happen is that the rhetoric of the kind of what's seen as the more positive progressive stuff becomes the cover for an approach which is actually not working but which is mainly funded uh, which is a more militarized approach that's, that's why the term becomes quite a a dangerous one, in a sense, um, and one of the things we grapple in when you know, in the primaries whether we should even. And I'm sure you've grappled with this too. Is you know, to, to what extent do we need to ditch the term security? Because security, if you think about it, is always around securing the situation as it exists. And if the situation as it exists is very unjust, um, then you are securing something that is that is unjust um, and will not solve the crisis because we know that climate change in particular will really impact those who are most vulnerable. So we need to turn it upside down. We need a different approach. Um, and a security position will just defend something which is, which has led us to the crisis that we're facing uh, right now. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's really how the kind of merging of these issues becomes quite problematic and why I urge people who are involved in climate action to, to be much more careful about kind of approaches with the military um realizing that actually the military have a very different objective um and strategy and interests than civil society necessarily then has um, and also understanding of course the bigger picture behind it which is of course that the military is also with in itself is captured within a um, a bigger issues around economic interests and one of the things that we've done at TNI is look very much at or the arms companies, which are making which are making huge amounts of money from this increased focus on militarization, who also support a climate security approach because as one strategist said, you know, climate change creates a situation of like a hundred year war and there's nothing a uh, an arms company would love more than a hundred years war. You can see how much they've, their stocks have gone up since the Ukraine war. So, so when when you consider that there are also economic interests involved in this whole picture, then we kind of need to realize that that combination of economic interests and a kind of particular militarized approach is not is going to be the last thing we need when we're talking about how to defend those who are the most vulnerable, most marginalised, uh, and as far from those circuits of power as you could imagine.
0: There's, um, you alluded to it earlier, and I find it a very interesting question. Um, I suppose there's a kind of, it's a kind of common sense position. Climate change happens, there's less stuff, there's less resources, however you want to frame it, and conflict will necessarily, naturally flow from that. Um, And I suppose there's also an argument which you put, which is that climate change doesn't necessarily need to lead to conflict. Um, could you just go, go into that a little bit? Because I find it very interesting. It's kind of, it was kind of, uh, it wasn't formulated in the way you formulated it and you've put it together very well, but but there isn't necessarily, it doesn't have to end up like that. And maybe there can be a process of adaption or whatever. Um, can you just talk to us about that a little bit? Because
1: I find that very interesting. I guess my intuition was before kind of studying it was that actually, yeah, if you have um, scarcity and climate change causes scarcity, then it's going to lead to conflict. I guess that, that was kind of my, also my understanding. And some studies initially suggested that, but the more they've dug into it, and the most recent was this big IPCC report that came out last year. They said that there's really actually little evidence that climate change and even kind of scarcity necessarily leads to conflict. And yet this is so embedded in military thinking that this will happen. There's this, it's, and I guess it comes from this kind of zero sum game kind of thinking. Uh, Someone's got to be a winner. Uh, There is, and perhaps it also touches into your approach about a kind of patriarchal way of thinking. Uh, If you've got to fight over limited resources, you're gonna, if you've got limited resources, you're gonna have a fight and someone's got to win this, this battle. Uh, but when you actually look into it that, it, that those things don't actually necessarily set up um, because one, it, it assumes a certain thing about human nature, I think, firstly. Uh, and it assumes that people will act in a certain way. Sometimes people facing scarcity will realise that they, the best way to deal with it is to collaborate and work out how to deal with it um, in a kind of more collaborative way and prevent it worsening because they can see something spiraling out of control where no one wins, and and also what they find is that bigger issue than the scarcity is really how a political system responds to it, and I think a really good example here is Syria because Syria is often called one of the first climate change wars. The story was that basically there was a drought in Syria, that led to people migrating uh, to the city. They became part of the rebellion against uh, Assad that caused the civil war that happened in the country. But if you look at it first, th- that was the story, and, and you'll often hear military strategies say, "Well, Syria is another example. We're going to have this happening." But when you look at it, firstly, those the people who were migrating, they didn't. They, there was no there was no evidence that they played any role in the rebellion any more than anyone else. Uh, the bigger issue was actually that the, and the reason why they moved was not because of climate change so much as the fact that um, Assad had removed a lot of the subsidies that farmers used to have um, following a kind of neoliberal agenda of the IMF and the World Bank, which said you had to cut subsidies to farmers. Um, And yet you never hear neoliberalism was the the cause. Um, And so that was leading to displacement. And then the real issue was how Assad responded to civil unrest and protests. You know, he could have dealt with it very differently, but it was ultimately a decision of a political system to react with repression uh, rather than address people's natural grievances that led to the conflict. And so that's so I think that points to the other part of this is that there is there people can respond in different ways, but also un, more important than issues of scarcity is actually how a political and social system responds. Um and that's going that's a really important lesson for us to learn as we as we go forward. And it's again here where the kind of that analogy of if if everything is uh, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail becomes true. You know, if you're in the military, you think everything is scarcity, means security, means military response. Whereas scarcity perhaps means collaboration and a very different approach. And and we need to kind of, we need to have that shift of thinking. And, and certainly the evidence suggests that, uh, and there are, stu- there are case studies of many places where there have been scarcity, where actually people have got together and And found ways to collaborate. Um, And some of the most interesting initiatives right now, even in places like Israel and Jordan, are of some grassroots civil societies looking at um, some of the issues around scarcity, like one of the rivers that flows through Jordan and Israel could actually be a platform for creating greater. Um, collaboration and talking. It certainly happened in, in Asia with the Mekong Delta. They have uh, also got issues around water scarcity and they have created interstate um, commissions to kind of resolve some of these issues. So, yeah, I think it's 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 an important thing to kind of deconstruct because I think there is uh, uh, too much of this assumption that we will that we are moving in because of difficulties, we're going to move into more conflict, whereas actually, which will not, and we all know, of course, that that will worsen the situation um, and lead to far more suffering. Um, actually, these moments uh, should be moments of kind of connecting and collaboration rather than this scarcity thinking that actually just leads us down a, a one-way uh, street to even more destruction. Sure. Um,
0: we're getting towards the end now, but there's a question that, which has played in my mind. Uh, we're talking about um, the world police, the military security services, the the kind of Western hard power apparatus that goes around uh, out there. But I, I think I particularly we saw against the background of, um, of Black Lives Matter, particularly in the US, but to a lesser degree here, heavily militarised police forces. And we're talking about kind of external security, but we've seen climate activists getting locked up we've seen a harder hardened um, internal response to climate activism and stuff like that recently do you think that trend will continue to harden internal security when there are uh, within states people are kind of uh, kind of fighting back and organizing and resisting uh, against climate change even even in liberal democracies um, do you think that will continue to harden? Is that something we need to pay to attention attention to the matter of internal security as it relates to to climate change and climate activism?
1: Yeah, I very much think so. I think, I mean, if, if we think that we're moving towards this is where security is is not just something about out there; it's also in within states. If that's the main approach that is being taken to respond to climate change, uh, then that necessarily means also the hardening of police structures um and 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 kind of a police response to it. So it's you can't have one without the other. It's a very much a they're very much dovetailed together, both in terms of discourse but also in terms of uh an approach and and also of course funding um they often come together. You know, you'll increase military response, you'll also increase police spending. And there's even connections like in the US, for example, a lot of the military equipment is going straight to police forces. They there was also they were deploying border guards and border police to to kind of police protests in, within cities. And so so the things are much more we like the state likes to, to kind of create a very image of the police is here and the military there, and they're not connected, but actually they're a lot more integration than we think. Um, and, and very much this approach. And, and if you look at the national security strategies, they're not just talking about the situation outside their shores, they're also talking about the potential insecurity within states. Uh, so there's talk about states of emergencies and that very, I would just say that this, this security kind of ideology where it becomes security is above everything uh, kind of permeates everything. So I, I do think we really need to make those connections. And it's certainly no coincidence to me that at the same time as we're seeing greater militarization, we're also seeing increased repression of those um, who actually, one could say, are the biggest fighters for our future, Uh, climate activists. You know, if anyone's defending our security right now uh, from worse than climate change, then it's the climate activists. But what do they face? They face imprisonment and... Population and those who are most causing climate crisis um, shall are getting undertaxed, winning billions, and no one would even dream of putting them in prison or or arresting them. So we've we've got very much a security approach, which is very much defending the status quo, even when that's leading us uh, to a much deeper um, systemic crisis. So no, you're very right. I think we have to we have to always connect those uh, two things together and there's some people and there's a there's a person you should also have on your podcast that sometimes is very interesting on this mark neocleos who very much looks at who doesn't he says there really is no distinction between the police and the military he kind of says that it's a completely artificial distinction I don't quite agree with him but I do think he's right that there is that this that that they're much more integrated and dovetailed than we than we imagine. And if we, if we don't start to shift our thinking around how to deal with these systemic crises, then we will just reinforce those institutions that are not leading us to actually have a more secure lives.
0: 100%. Um, Nick, we have to round it off there. Um, thank you very much. The pieces of your, your excellent work, which we have discussed here, will be linked as well as lots of other um, stuff. So our listeners can go and... Um, if they wish to, and they certainly should, I urge them to go and read more of your work and more of the Transnational Institute's work. Thank you very much for coming on. You've been a fantastic guest.
1: Thank you, Joe. Thank you.
0: This has been Warrior Nation. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. We want to reach as many listeners as possible. So whatever platform you're hearing this on, please pop us a five-star rating. Apparently, it really helps in terms of spreading the word. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram on at This episode was recorded at Liverpool Podcast Studios with music from Easy On Noise. See you next time.